In this episode of the Chillinoy Podcast, I sit down with Suzanne Schick from the University of California, San Francisco. Suzanne studies the health effects of air pollution in human subjects. She focuses on the chemistry and toxicity of smoke. She also focuses on how exposure to tobacco or cannabis smoke can cause heart and lung disease. Suzanne's research on chemistry and toxicity of cigarette smoke has helped to define a new health risk from smoking, third-hand smoke. What is third-hand smoke? Third-hand smoke is what you smell when you go into a hotel room where people have been smoking, or what rubs off on your skin if you touch a wall, or if you visit somebody's house and they've been smoking. So that means it's not only there in the air, but it's also coming out of the surfaces. So third-hand smoke is the residue of tobacco smoking that's in, in a building after people have smoked. We call it the three R's. It remains, it doesn't go away. It reacts with other chemicals in the environment and it also will be able to come back off of whatever it's stuck to, usually at a lower concentration. Studies have shown that even if an adult smoker, a parent, smokes only outdoors, their children have higher levels of exposure to smoke compounds, probably because of what sticks to their skin and their hands that they then bring indoors and expose their children to. I want to be very clear at the top of this episode. Suzanne supports the legalization of cannabis. She believes that criminalizing cannabis use is a clear waste of public resources. We make this clear later on in the episode, but I felt like it was important to mention it at the top of this episode. Suzanne isn't trying to harsh our mellow, she's simply trying to make sure that we are aware of the risks of smoking anything, including cannabis. Enjoy the episode. Hey Suzanne, how are you today? Good morning, Cole. I'm fine. Good. How about good. you? I, I can't complain. Like I was saying before the show, I'm doing pretty good for a Monday. Had a good start to my day. And I've been so excited to sit down and speak to you. Um, for folks that don't know you, uh, could you give uh, just a brief, who, who are you and uh, what, what do you do? <laughs> okay, so my name is Suzanne Schick and I work at the University of California, San Francisco as a researcher. My title is Associate Professor of Medicine, but I'm not an actual medical doctor. I am a PhD and my background training started in cell biology and then moved to public health and tobacco control. So I came to the cannabis world from a background of studying the health effects of exposure to secondhand cigarette smoke. Gotcha. That's, yeah. that's, my, that's, that's how I got here. And that's a lot of what our conversation focuses around today, not cigarette smoke specifically, although they do call them uh, a left-handed cigarette. <laughs> um, that's the first euphemism I heard for a joint when I was a, when I was a young lad. Um, yeah, I, that's yeah. a new one to me, but, you know, new every one. place has got, you know, all their words, all the different ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the one that made me laugh the most uh, most recently, uh, Woody Harrelson said, I, I think I'm about to go fire up a Hooter. I'm about ready to fire up a Hooter. No. I was like, wow, I've never heard that one before. <laughs> so there's funny ones too. Um, anyways, yeah. jokes jokes aside, our, our subject matter is pretty serious today and it has a little bit to do with secondhand smoke, but specifically consumption lounges and some of the research you've done. Um, 
lest I, if I try to summarize it, I'm just going to butcher it and sound really silly. I want to give you the space to talk about uh, your research um, and some of your thoughts about what you've found. Okay. Well, I'll just preface this by saying that we first met just, you know, a few weeks ago because we were both invited to a panel. I don't even remember the host, but it was a public health or regulatory institution in Illinois, in Chicago, I think specifically. Yeah, the, and the, the actual is, lead, the lead cannabis regulation or the cannabis regulation oversight office. Sorry to cut you off, but. No, yeah. no, that's right. Because I get you know invited to speak to a lot of these. And so it all blurs together for me, but I really enjoyed the conversation in this particular seminar where we were really talking, everybody was talking about consumption lounges. And some people are coming from a, we really want them because we need safety. Other, you know, a lot of people were talking about public safety and the fact that people are still being arrested for consuming cannabis any place other than basically a private home that they own. Or not, not maybe not arrested, but given tickets and, and a lot of legal grief. Now, I live in San Francisco, California, and um, it's still illegal in my community to consume cannabis in public. But the police force, I would say in the greater Bay Area, but certainly in my own experience in the larger cities in the San Francisco Bay Area, San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, has really decided that prosecuting people for consumption of small amounts is not where they want to put your energy. So the first, so I've been, now my background is um, studying the chemistry and toxicity of secondhand cigarette smoke. And I actually do experiments in my laboratory where we expose people to small amounts of secondhand or thirdhand cigarette smoke. And thirdhand is the stuff that sticks to surfaces in your environment and study the health effects. And I've got, you know, some cool stuff I could talk about later about my results from that. But the first step when you're trying to look at the health effects of any kind of air pollutant or environmental pollutant is to look at how much of it there is in a given environment. And that's really where I'm at with secondhand cannabis smoke not exposing people to it and studying the health effects, but going to public places here in the greater Bay Area and in California as a whole, I've got funding to do that and measuring air pollution concentrations. And we're a small laboratory and most of our instruments are designed to measure particles in the air. So anytime you burn anything, whether it's a cigarette, whether it's, you know, dabs, you're throwing stuff into the air, you're throwing chemicals into the air, and most of them are in the form of tiny, tiny droplets. Now, we, think, we visualize particles as like little balls, and um, they aren't necessarily a solid when you're talking about cannabis smoke and tobacco smoke. If you're looking at diesel exhaust, you're usually going to have a hard center made out of organic carbon, black carbon, that has a whole bunch of other more liquid, more waxy, oily stuff stuck to it. When you're looking at cigarette smoke and cannabis smoke, 
what you're really seeing is just droplets of oils and waxes. The scientific term for oils and waxes is semi-volatile organic compounds. But when you burn a leaf, pretty much any kind of leaf, most of what you're getting is these oils and waxes as droplets. And that is the stuff that you see on walls as a brown film. That's what happens when those chemicals stick to the wall. That is the stuff that when you're around it, you carry away with you as an, you know, imperceptible as an odor on your clothing and in your hair, on your skin. So it's a real physical object and we measure it using these instruments. Mostly, you know, most of our measurements use, um, they're called a laser spectrophotometer. And all this is, is a little pump that pulls air in and runs it through a focused laser beam and then measures how many photons get bounced off of the particles in the stream of air. It's not a perfect instrument because it's not capable of detecting particles that are super tiny. They don't bounce enough light for it to pick up and measure, but it works really well. And um, it's a pretty strong, well-developed technology and it comes as a pretty small instrument that you can tuck in a purse. We usually back that up with also collecting samples on filters, just, you know, like a, a cassette that has a flat disc of a paper-like material in it that we pre-weigh, bring in, run air through and measure how much air we're running through and then weigh again. That gives us our gravimetric measurement and we use that to compare to our photometric measurement. So we've been going for a while to public events and to dispensaries in particular in the greater Bay Area um, and measuring PM 2.5. And I'll just lay it out real fast and real hard. When we're around people who are smoking cannabis or dabbing or vaping, we see high levels of particulate air pollution, lots and lots of PM 2.5. Now I'm gonna, think I'll, well, I'll talk a little bit more and then I'll show you some, some figures from a paper that we've got coming out and another paper that we published previously. But we started actually by going to the 420 Festival in Golden Gate Park in 2017. So um, every April 20th in the Greater Bay Area, people gather on a little knoll in a green meadow surrounded by beautiful cypress trees in Golden Gate Park. And everybody essentially, you know, counts down to 420 and fires up and smokes at the exact same time. And the first year we went, it was a sunny, gorgeous, clear day, and it had just rained the day before. So there was no other, you know, real sources of pollutants in the air. And we logged super duper high particle concentrations, which is a little bit surprising because it's a big open outdoor space. But when everyone fires up at the same exact time, which is not how normally people are behaving if they're smoking in public, then you really see huge air pollution and like you can sort of like think about that in your head about like what's it like if you go say car camping on memorial day and people are having everybody's got a fire going toasting marshmallows that's also a real detectable you can smell it sometimes you can feel it in your eyes and you can see it 
exposure to air pollution. And that's all well and good if you're a non-smoker walking by and it's 15 minutes out of your life, or if you choose to go camping one or two days a year and it's no, it's just a small fraction of your exposure. Unless you're really sick, it's unlikely to cause you serious harm. But let's talk about what does exposure to PM 2.5 do to people? So the thing that most people think about when they're thinking about uh, the health effects of smoke exposure, secondhand or active smoking is cancer. That lung cancer, because it's relatively rare unless you're a smoker or exposed to high levels of environmental um, particulates was the first disease that was identified as being caused by smoking. They literally started getting hints that it was happening in the 1890s, but the first really solid, like we've got all the bases covered experiments that demonstrated that the more you smoked, the greater your chances were of getting lung cancer occurred in the mid 1950s. Uh, two researchers, three researchers really did it. Um, one researcher was more obscure and he was working, I think in, um, Argentina or Chile, and he tested the carcinogenicity of cigarette smoke on rabbit's ears and found that if you painted rabbit's ears with cigarette tar, they would get developed tumors. Now, he was working out, you know, outside the mainstream and a little bit early, so a lot of science was terribly disrupted by World War II, and things you know, didn't start to really get back in a groove till five years after the end of the war. And then there were two other research, researchers, one of whom shaved a bunch of mice and painted their backs with cigarette tar and showed that they developed tumors. And the other of whom studied a group of physicians in Britain, in England. So this was a professional society and the doctors who smoked had more can lung cancer than the doctors who didn't. And the more they smoked, the more lung cancer they got. So these men had been smoking since their youth. It's not like they took it up and they just discovered it in the 1950s. Your cancer risks are kind of cumulative and you build them up over time and the risk is linear. The more you do, the greater your risk. Now, since that time, we've discovered that active smoking and secondhand smoke exposure really, you know, they have a wide range of negative health effects of diseases and illnesses that they caused. And they really kind of dwell in the realms of cancer, cardiovascular disease, i.e. heart attacks and strokes, and respiratory disease, i.e. chronic obstruction, obstructive pulmonary disorder or emphysema as it used to be called and asthma and, you know, in the lower grade, but still really affecting a lot of people's lives, the lower grade stuff is respiratory infections. The first link between secondhand smoke exposure and a health effect was observed in 1968, where someone published a paper showing that the children of smokers had a greater incidence of respiratory infections and wheeze. Now think about that, that's 1950 to 1968, the first active smoking report of disease that was scientifically actionable, then the first 
accurate report of secondhand exposure and disease that was really scientifically actionable. That was 18 years. Now, all this time, people have been smoking marijuana. It's not like it's not been happening, um, but it's not getting studied. It's not considered a significant health problem. It is illegal and highly, you know, how do you say, stigmatized Yeah. all throughout Europe and the United States. Now, we roll forward and the second major evidence that secondhand smoke exposure from tobacco is bad for you emerged in the 1980s when someone analyzed it. It's funny, my bike just popped into view there. Um, they analyzed data from a whole lot, like a huge population sample in Japan and found that women who were married to men who smoked had a higher rate of lung cancer. And this was some serious stuff because the idea that your choice to smoke is bad for you is one thing, but the idea that your choice to smoke harms other people around you who aren't choosing to smoke politically and emotionally, that's a very, very different thing. So that, you know, in that time between the 1970s and the 1980s, we started really seeing an emergence of campaigns to not expose people to secondhand smoke. And it only took off further, starting with this finding on lung cancer. Some of my earlier research shows that that paper in the 1980s on lung cancer in the wives of smokers just lit a fuse on, on research on secondhand and side stream exposure in the, the tobacco industry. And they did a bunch of experiments that they never published that showed that um, the sides from smoke, so smoke from anything that you like puff on has two parts. Mainstream is what you're inhaling as an active smoker by pulling air through something that's burning. And side stream is what that burning thing puts into the air when you're not sucking on it. And as you can imagine, when you're pulling air through something that's burning, it increases the burn temperature which means that the chemicals that get released into your mouth and your lungs when you're pulling on it have been generated at a higher temperature and have are actually smaller molecules, less complex and less carcinogenic and toxic. Whereas when that thing's sitting there at a lower temperature, no one's pulling air through, uh, through it. It's burning at a lower temperature and it's putting more complicated chemicals into the air that are actually more toxic. When they compared the ability of mainstream and sidestream cigarette smoke to kill rats at a very high dosage, but a standard toxicological assay, you compare things at high dosages to get an idea of how you know, poisonous they are compared to other things that you do a similar test with. When they compared mainstream and sidestream, they found that sidestream was about four times more toxic than the smoke that smokers inhale, gram per gram. And that's just physics, and it will carry over to marijuana smoke, cannabis smoke, just really? because hot burn and cold burn, two different things. Really quick, is it's the idea, just to make sure I'm understanding it, maybe for our listeners too, it's the idea that like a hot burn might even incinerate other things. Like it gets so hot that it incinerates, but a cold burn, it's like it's a cooler temperature, it's 
possibly releasing more compounds is what you're saying or it is rather it is it is it's releasing it's not it well it's not necessarily releasing more stuff per time what it is is the stuff is less broken down and when the chemicals are larger longer more complicated their chance of being carcinogenic and otherwise toxic is greater that makes sense so that's just basic. Anytime you're smoking something and it does not matter whether it's tobacco or marijuana, that differential is going to be there. Yeah. And I don't mean to get us and, too far off, off the path, but it, it's kind of like the idea of like people have wondered why is plane air, like people have wondered during the age of COVID, why is the plane the better place to be? And I've maybe I'm wrong in this, but I've been explained that like since the air is coming in across hot engines it's and you're getting constantly fresh air like like that that's why it might be a safer environment than in than just being in a bus i know this is a kind of a completely different subject no no that's that's see that temperature it doesn't always come across a hot enough engine to do anything to it chemically it might be warmed by proximity and intentionally because the air is very cold up above and you got to warm it somehow or you're just going to be creating a freezer (laughs) bad seed (laughs) it's already cold enough there for some of us but what's really going on that makes an airplane less dangerous than a bus but not still like, you know, I still want people wearing masks, you know, on airplanes and in transit in general makes it more uh, safe is that the air exchange rate, the number of times that the whole volume of air is being replaced per hour is a lot greater because they know now that there's a good chance people will be spreading diseases sitting next to each other that close. So they're really throwing air through it faster and, you know, at a really high rate. Whereas in your house, in a building, or in a bus, unless it's also really carefully ventilated, it's lower rates of air exchange and greater chance that someone, what someone else exhales makes it to you before it gets run out of the space through um, filtration or, or ventilation. So anyway, back to the basics of, you know, secondhand smoke toxicity, you're starting with something that's more toxic to begin with. Sidestream smoke is more toxic. And so we left off talking about the advance of research in the early 80s with lung cancer being more common among women who were exposed secondhand. Because at that time in the 70s, 60s, 80s, most Japanese women didn't smoke. That was very uncommon. So if you were getting secondhand exposure, you were getting it from the men in your life, strictly your husband, really, or your your, your father-in-law. Move forward from the 1980s to literally when I started doing my research and we found something really scary and surprising even to physicians and and scientists, which is this. Your lung cancer or other cancer rate might be linear, but the ability of exposure to ultrafine and fine particles in the air to cause cardiovascular disease, to essentially boost your risk of a heart attack, that ain't linear, that's exponential. Goes up real high at real low concentrations. And that's research that literally started emerging 20 years ago or less. When I did my first secondhand smoke exposure and looked at the first cardiovascular measures, my mentor, who is an expert in lung biology, didn't think we'd see squat at the low concentrations I was using. And we did. 
we saw an immediate change in the ability of your blood vessels to respond to changes in blood flow. And that change, that loss of ability to respond happened after a 30 minute exposure to a low concentration, lower than you could get at say, you know, that 420 festival or at a lot of the places we go to in public where there are really heavy exposures to cannabis smoke, just that short exposure was enough to knock out your body's ability to respond in a healthy manner to changes in your blood flow. So I don't think I'm going to dig deep into that because that one wants visuals to explain, but let's just say that it's really believable, highly predictive of future heart attacks and potentially future strokes because strokes and a heart attacks occur through similar mechanisms. It's both, uh, the, you know, basically, uh, we can something heart and allow it to just a Sorry, I, uh, that was the weirdest thing. Uh, just to quickly explain, we just got cut off technology. I'm going to let you swing back right into it. Sorry about that. Okay. Takes more than that to throw me off track when I'm talking about stuff I care about. So what I was saying is that we're finding big studies of large groups of people comparing cardiovascular events, i.e. showing up the ER with chest pain and real infarction predicted by really small changes in the amount in uh, cardiovascular events and showing up at hospitals with chest pain or having a heart attack. And 10 micrograms per cubic meter is not detectable by a human being, not even a well-educated, do it every day, measure it all the time human being like me. So we're saying that really small changes in PM 2.5 concentration have big effects on our cardiovasculature. And what's interesting about this is it's like if you take a graph and you've got um, the um, a number of events here and PM2, you know, PM2.5 concentration up here, it only takes a tiny amount. You get, end up with a graph where even like little changes in ambient air pollution are similar to pretty significant exposures to secondhand smoke and are not that much different from smoking a cigarette a day, and which is not that much different from smoking a pack a day. You do get worse effects for smoking a pack a day than you do from small changes in secondhand smoke exposure or ambient air pollution, but it's not anything like linear. It's really something where you get a bang huge effect out of a small change. And this is what's been driving regulatory agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency to decrease their minimum allowable, what we call healthy exposures. That's been happening from going down from, you know, 35.5 down to 12.5 in the US. And for the WHO, it's really like, you know, even lower. They're proposing an annual average of five. And you may think, oh God, that's crazy. Nobody has air that's that clean. Well, actually we do our annual PM 2.5 concentrations in a lot of the United States are healthy. Our clean outdoor air laws have worked. So that's our framing, our scientific background. And now we have the emergence of legal recreational cannabis and people wanting to buy and sell it legally, which I personally do not oppose. I don't feel like that's a good use of our political regulatory 
and 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 like law enforcement energy to prevent adults from using cannabis. However, every time I lecture on it, I've got to say, look, don't smoke it. In fact, don't vape it or dab it either because your lungs were not meant for that. They can do it. They're an excellent drug delivery system. It works really well, gets straight to your brain before it gets broken down by your liver, but you will have health effects. And the medical benefits of cannabis are real, but they're going to be opposed long-term by your health effects from smoking. Now, I have dear friends and people I sincerely respect who, you know, are my intellectual equals and betters who do still choose to smoke cannabis, but I consider it a risky behavior. And I always recommend using oral preparations unless there is absolutely no way you can tolerate them or they simply do not provide the effect you need. And really I am underlying need there, not like recreationally prefer, but flat out need. If your pain's that bad and you need that immediate bang, that would really be the only time I would recommend using your lungs. And why is that? Well, one's a lot safer than the other. And, but at the same time, I go out into public and I see people just being so pleased that they can smoke in public and really, really wanting to bring back what to me are the bad old days of walking into public spaces, whether it be a bar in San Francisco in the 90s or a dispensary in San Francisco in the 90s. And I run into smoke concentrations that are really, really high and really, really dangerous to the people who work around and frankly are potentially hazardous to anybody who has high blood pressure, other risk factors for, for heart attacks and visits a space where this kind of stuff is going down where people are smoking and it's indoors. So I am going to share my screen here. Um, it's, can you en enable me? It's, it says I can't. Um, yeah, let's, let's figure this out. I was trying to chill You're seeing how the sauce is made. Allow participants to share screen. You should be good to go. All right, there we are. Let's see here. PM 2.com. All right. So this is my latest paper that has just been published in a scientific journal called Environmental Science and Technology Letters. It's not out on all of the big indexing services yet. This is fresh and hot off the press. We went to a cannabis lounge that's busy and popular in the greater San Francisco area. Come on, boo-boo. Give me a PDF here. All right. Well, um, I'm going to go. I don't know what you're seeing here. I'm going to actually open a PDF here because I'm not getting it easily through the, the web. And um, we just basically went with instruments in our backpacks, went with colleagues who made purchases. We went into the uh, lounges with them and sat with them while they consumed cannabis. So I'm going to change my share now to my PDF and um, measured the PM 2.5 concentrations with the instruments, the photometers and the pumps and filters that I described earlier and what we found that was that we made nine experiments between 2018 and 2019 we got 
cut off by the pandemic, like a lot of people did, our average PM 2.5 concentration was 840 micrograms per cubic meter. Now, you will recall that I just said that we see changes in health events with changes as small as 10 micrograms per cubic meter. If you are looking at the air quality index for the air outside your home, it cuts off and at 500. They don't have advisories other than stay home, don't go outside. And if you're sick, stay still and don't breathe hard because it's that bad for you. Now, I'm sitting here saying it's that bad for you. And somebody who regularly smokes marijuana is saying, it ain't killed me yet. And I don't see people dropping dead when they walk through the door. And I've literally had people dismiss me in, in other like talks about this. No, it's not like that. Everybody would know that marijuana was smoke exposure was bad for you and not do it if it killed you right away all the time. What I'm saying is though, comparing not breathing it to breathing it, you will have a much higher chance. It increases your risk of a heart attack, just a secondhand exposure right away. And it increases it by anywhere between, it looks like eight and 30%. Depends, you know, we, these are studies comparing, you know, smoke, smoking bans. But you might be sitting there saying to yourself, well, I don't see people dying or, but marijuana's got good stuff in it. How can it possibly be bad for you? It can be both things at the same time. You can be getting a benefit for your pain or your anxiety at the same time as you're increasing your risk of dying of a heart attack. It's a, there's a lot of chemicals in play there and they don't cancel each other out. I have colleagues here at UCSF who are doing fascinating studies on the ability of THC to reduce inflammation. But the effect of PM 2.5, you breathe it in and bam, your lungs send a neural signal to your blood vessels that basically kills their ability to respond in a healthy way to normal changes in blood flow. That happens instantaneously and it happens whether there's THC present or not. That's, I mean, we haven't proven that absolutely totally, but one of my colleagues is in process of getting a paper out showing the neural, you know, a lot of the mechanisms. And I'm gonna go on record here and I say, saying, I think this is so. So um, let's dive down the paper a little bit more. Um, there were a bunch of interesting things in here. Let's see, sorry to give you dizziness here. So this is our experiments and some of the experiments, because it's a lounge, you only get about 30 minutes in there. It depends on how strictly they're enforcing it. Some days we had extra staff and we'd cycle people in and out with relays. We'd bring the instruments in, turn them on, do a session with someone, turn the instruments off, take them outside, give the next person the backpack and they'd go in. And so we'd get multiple visits per day. Plus Other everybody days, was happy, had, right? Sorry, just a joke. <laughs> Other days we just were only had enough staff to do, do one go round. Here are average particle concentrations. These are dangerously high particle concentrations. And Again, when we're working in a public place and we're dealing with an exposure, the people we worry about the most are the people who are working in the exposure. 
the customers, that's one set. The people who come in and have to do a job in the dispensary during business hours, that's another set. And then there's those employees. And what I observe is casually, just like my, my gloss on it, is that the people who work in dispensaries don't particularly enjoy the secondhand smoke exposure. I see them doing their best to put up with it, but doing little things like as much as they can to avoid it. And this dispensary actually installed a ventilation system midway through our study. You know, we weren't associated with them. We didn't ask their permission and they didn't tell us their building plans. So on the 8th of March in 2019, my crew rolled up and there's a whole new thing installed in there and it's got vents where we really didn't have much of a vent system before. And it looked like it reduced the particle concentration a little bit we see you know, an average of 795 instead of an average of 905, but that's just a little tiny reduction. It's not the reduction you need to protect people's health. I would call this a not particularly effective and probably very expensive intervention. Now, that's not to say that ventilation can't possibly help, but when you're sitting next to someone who's actively smoking, Unless they're literally like, even if you have like a, a fume hood over you, like you have in a restaurant kitchen, if you're right next to them, you're getting an exposure. And when you start just sitting there casually releasing it into the air and there's just ducts above you, just holes in the wall or holes in the tube up there, the, the smoke gets widespread in the room long before it can be pulled out. You're increasing the air exchange rate, which is positive, but it is not sufficient to pull the PM 2.5 concentration down to safe levels. In order to do that, essentially, you've got to have a ventilation system. You've got to have it isolating the person who's emitting. You can't have someone sitting next to them who you don't want exposed. And you have to control the number, number of people who are actively firing up. You can't have more than a certain number or your vent system isn't going to meet the demand. And that's not how people are talking about managing the smoke, the secondhand smoke in dispensaries at that time, at this time. The best and most proactive business owners, and I give props to the business owners, a lot of them do potentially recognize it as a problem and they know their employees would rather not have it. But they're hoping that spending big money up front on ventilation will mean that they don't have to touch the problem every day by managing who's sitting next to who and how many people are smoking at any given time. And in my opinion, you have to hit those factors too. Um, if you want to have a safe consumption area, um, you really have to be looking at your particle concentrations, which means instrumentation. There's lower cost instruments, but they, you know, they're also easy to get dirty and, and not be properly maintained. And you have to be managing your users, your consumers, your customers in ways that can be intrusive, that definitely go against your relax, you're safe now, enjoy a chill, you know? And there's a real conflict there. I think that people don't, you know, most people don't want to endanger the health of their employees, and most employees would prefer not to be endangered, even if they're passionate about wanting cannabis to be available to the community. But there's a big disconnect really on what the health risks are 
I'd say the cannabis community is hoping that the benefits of the THC and the smoke are gonna outweigh the other health effects, or they're just not aware of the health effects. And as a scientist, I've gotta say, no, you gotta pay attention to this. I understand that there is a small, there is a population of people who need and rely on cannabis and who live in places where they will get busted and harassed for consuming it. But that is a relatively small population that we can do some really pointed supports, give them resources and help them. Then there's a much larger population of people who say, like to manage their cannabis consumption by only doing it at the dispensary rather than doing it at home and maybe exposing their family or just keeping control by doing it only in one place. And then there's just like the hospitality sense of being able to go there and just totally throw down, which is a good feeling, but leads to some bad exposures. Now the dispensary whose data I'm showing here allowed smoking. Let me see if I can pull up one more number. This is, this is just a graph of our averages and standard deviations for all our different experiments. The light bubbles are the experiments after the vent system, I think. It's really hard to tell because it didn't make a big difference. Um, and we just ended up with high pollution exposures. We also have a paper that came out last year where we went a very dis different dispensary that didn't allow smoking at all. And they actually, we were openly collaborating with them and they allowed us to put their in our instruments there 24 seven. And their PM 2.5 concentrations are way, way lower than the, we see in, the, in this lounge where they allowed active smoking. But they were still averaging 85 micrograms per cubic meter during business hours. So that's nearly tenfold lower, but it's not low enough for cardiovascular safety and health. Now, to be clear, you're saying they didn't allow smoking, but they allowed dabbing or vaping. Dabbing and vaporizing and vaping. So they had volcano vaporizers and they had dab rigs that you could check out or that were just sitting there for you to use. They were very careful and they were really like working hard to allow a consumption space with a lower risk. And it was a lower risk. Your cancer risk would be a lot lower working there because Dabbing and vaporizing, while they do still throw chemically reactive stuff in particles into the air, don't have as many carcinogens because you're not actively burning it. Although the way some people dab, they're pretty damn close to burning it. Um, but so that kind of like that, that, that addresses the realm of cancer risk, but the equal realm of cardiovascular risk and respiratory risk aren't really being addressed. And they were really sad and unhappy and frankly grumpy with this when we presented these results, but we kept them in the loop and we had a dialogue and I was not putting a hustle on them. I was trying to share information, but it wasn't information they didn't want to hear because they wanted it to be safe and it was safer, but not safe. So that's like my bottom line message. And I really thank you for letting me like lay out all the background, do all of the, the you know, the, the little side notes that help me explain how I see this as a person who's out doing this research and has this educational and research background where I know I focus on the health effects and I, I see things through my public health lens of wanting 
people to be able to go to a business and buy a product they want without incurring a dangerous health exposure. So I would open it back up to you and just say, you know, what's it looked like to you and, and what questions and thoughts do you have? I'm going to see if I've got any, if I have one more good graphic here. I can't remember if it's in this file. Yeah, oh, I'll show you this one. This is what it looks like on the photometer when you go into a lounge. Now, it looks like we've got a bunch of high peaks and a bunch of low stuff, but the low ain't very low here. And the high peaks are crazy high. So this is MIGs, not micrograms. And so this is a thousandfold different number than what I've been showing before. We talk about health effects in micrograms. So this is 20,000 micrograms. This is what uh, it looks like when you're right next to the, the plume of smoke coming off of someone's joint or someone fires up a blunt right under your nose or next to you. And down here, can't remember what was the average in this one. Yeah, the average for this experiment was 889, real close to the average for the whole study. So there are differences, but the background PM2.5 concentration is just hazardously high when you're near someone who's actively smoking it. Yeah, this is this is all really interesting stuff. And I just want to thank you so much for, for going through all of it. Yeah, I wanted to give you plenty of space to do that because um, I know you've got an extensive background in, in all of these things, just like the people that you work with. Um, and I guess just to, to start the conversation, let's make it clear. Let's make it crystal clear, um, just in case it isn't already. I know this might feel like we're taking a few steps back, but I'm sure you've, you've addressed this before and you already kind of did. You said, I'm not trying to put a damper on this. You're not, you're not, you said earlier too, you support the legalization of cannabis. Uh, like you don't think that it's a wise use of our public, you know, safety's time to devote resources to trying to, to do those things. I just like to say that because um, I feel like some people will hear these things that we're saying, which are just findings that, like you say, you're just trying to share. You're not trying. It's not like you have an agenda to shut down consumption launches. You have, if you, if I were to characterize your agenda and feel free to correct me or, or to make it like whatever. Um, if I were to characterize your agenda, I don't even want to, that sounds weird. It would be that you again, support the legalization of cannabis but you would also like a say a, a really a real safe space to consume yeah. like completely yeah. safe because uh the safe consumption lounges just to i'm trying to address a lot of thoughts that i feel like maybe my my listeners have we know that safe consumption i feel like there's two meanings to safe consumption first and foremost like you've already mentioned so that people aren't being harassed by law enforcement but then your yeah. part like i said if i could characterize your agenda at all it would be that yes, you want people to have a safe space where they can't be harassed, but you would also like the people that uh, work at that establishment to be safe and not exposed to secondhand smoke. Like you say, we've been through this already. There used to be smoking sections in restaurants, for example. I'm yeah. young enough to yeah. remember that. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put one more piece in here. Now, um, 
A lot of the people who work in lounges smoke cannabis on the regular. We see employees on break dabbing and things like that. And, you know, that's their business and that's that's between them and their employers. But we also there have been a couple of studies of the health of people who worked in bars before and after bans on cigarette smoking. Not a lot of them, because these are hard studies to do. A lot of times a bar employee does not want to collaborate with a university researcher because they don't want their boss getting mad at them. So a few of these studies have been done looking at the health of bar workers before and after smoking bans and even the bar workers who were active smokers felt healthier, had fewer respiratory symptoms. And in one study, they actually found an increase in improvement in their lung function measured by their ability to breathe deeply, you know, a larger volume of air. So these people, and these people didn't reduce their, the number of cigarettes they smoked per day, but by taking away their work exposure to secondhand smoke, they experienced health, improved health. And it definitely was a huge improvement for the non-smokers who generally, you know, even in a bar in the 90s in San Francisco or in the late 90s in Scotland or England, where some of the other studies were done, you know, in most of the, most people are not, never were cigarette smokers, you know, like if you even in, in the countries where people smoked the most, you never reached 50% of all of the population, you might have gotten close to 50% of the men, but not overall. So there's always oh, in almost most circumstances, most people who are getting exposed are not people who are actively going to be using on the regular. And even the people who are active cannabis users, I suspect strongly would see improvements in their health if they lost their secondhand exposure at work. Yeah. It's, and I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say public health is a big tent and there's plenty of people on my public health team who don't want anybody using any drug at any time. And my view is I'd like that ideally, but the world we live in it is a difficult one. And I, I respect people's need, desire for the occasional chemical support. And if it's not a particularly harmful one, then I don't, I don't make it my business to get in the way of that. I just, and I, and I definitely don't want to see people getting put in jail and getting their lives disrupted and their ability to earn their incomes and take care of their families disrupted for something that doesn't have to cause any other harms except to them. And those can be very, very small potential harms. If you're using cannabis by edibles and you've got your dose dialed in, you can use cannabis. And I see so far very few risks associated with that. We're still in the infancy of studying this. Um, whenever somebody in the cannabis community comes up to me with their hands on their hips and says, studies have shown that this doesn't cause cancer. I'm like, girl, please. People don't even tell the truth and people haven't even been asking good questions. We can't do those experiments, hardly. You know, we're just getting to the point where it's where people feel safe enough being honest about their cannabis use. And we still don't have long enough terms to look at lung cancer and for heart disease we, you know, we still need larger populations and more nuanced questions because in the big studies, 
traditionally, they would literally ask you, have you ever smoked marijuana? And that puts you in one category. That's not predictive of your health risk. You really need nuanced questions about how much, how often, how are you doing it? You know, all of these things. And, and we're trying to get the research world to crack open and see that cannabis use has changed radically over the past 10 years. It's changing constantly. Vapes, dabs, different ways of using, and just a whole different thing. And that's really challenging. And it's making it hard for solid, reliable research as yet. But the research we have says, A, secondhand smoke is unlikely to be safe safer if it's coming from cannabis than if it's coming from tobacco. One of my colleagues, Matt Springer, did animal exposure studies that are very similar to my human exposure studies and showed that marijuana smoke had just as much, if not more, negative cardiovascular effect right away, low concentrations. It's just not good to breathe small particles of chemicals into your lungs. Your lungs don't like it and they will let your body know immediately. Yeah. I always reference this. People will say like, oh, you know, smoking cannabis, they do this comparison, which I think is hasty. Uh, smoking cannabis is, is uh, less unhealthy than alcohol or something, something to that effect. And they'll say like, oh, your liver and everything else. And I'm like, yeah, but breathing air and drinking spring water is maybe more healthy than both of those activities. It's my funny Reliably way of saying- more healthy than both of those activities. <laughs> exactly. It's my funny way of saying like, you know, if we're really going to do these yeah. comparisons, like, I don't know, like who's and who's I mean, actually saying smoking anything is healthy. Like uh, that's just a weird, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's something that you can choose to do. If, if for you, the benefits outweigh the risks, but you should have a very good grasp of the risks, not a, not a, a grasp that's you know, 70 years old and based strictly on cancer risk. Yeah. And you should, you should have a care for the people around you and not be casual about the secondhand exposure, even though it's a lower concentration, just because it hits so hard on your yeah. cardiovascular. So I was, you know, like for active use, cigarette smoke, um, you basically see just right around 30% or, you know, one third each problem, cancer, cardiovascular and respiratory. For secondhand smoke exposure, you don't kill as many people with it as you do with active, but it's almost all cardiovascular. It's like 70% cardiovascular and only 10 or 15% um, cancer and then the rest is things like sudden infant death syndrome and other terrifying and awful things like that yeah so yeah i like what you brought up about uh, a converse it, so first of all i feel like legalization or the liber the liberalization of uh some of our some of our drug policy let's just say that you know um yeah has allowed us to start having an honest conversation about use like people are less, less afraid to say that they use. And then, like you say, um, with regard to data, they can be more open about how they use, when they use, what they use, you know, all those things. And hear me out on this. I know that this might feel like a, a switch in topics slightly, but I think it piggybacks off of what you were talking about, about being honest about the risks, which we could deduce from this data that I was just talking about being able to collect now that we can have this honest conversation, Right. Yeah. What some people that oppose these policies don't realize is that just because we like maybe I feel like they don't realize just because we legalize these substances doesn't mean like people like you aren't going to look into like, how can we make sure that this 
this does only affect the individual, right? Because that's the whole thing that this movement is built on. If I'm not hurting anybody else, then who are you to say that it's illegal? Well, okay. In certain circumstances, though, you kind of are hurting other people. So how can we change that so that we can keep it to that core idea, which is fundamentally true, but we have to like, we have to, like you say, with secondhand smoke exposure and everything else to wrap around to my point, I feel like if we legalize and change our drug policy, start having an honest conversation, continue collecting data, people that want to raise their children and say, Hey, you shouldn't use drugs. They would have more data to point to. Yeah. to say why yeah. you shouldn't use drugs. Like, I just don't understand why they can't see that. But again, uh, sorry, I don't mean to get us off on a different topic. Well, I'll, I'll take you a little bit farther on that topic. One of the reasons I've been measuring PM 2.5 in public places rather than, you know, burning uh, cannabis in my laboratory is because the regulatory controls are so onerous and slow moving. You know, I essentially would need to, but, and I have, now gotten a grant funded that really funds, you know, like about 10% of my time for a year to push a application for the use of cannabis in the laboratory without getting my laboratory shut down and me put in jail. So like, even though cannabis is legal in my community and I could call up a delivery service and have it delivered to me at the curb, if I brought that into the laboratory Um, the entire university would suffer penalties and I would suffer severe penalties. And so I have to make an application process that can take up to two years. I know people who have succeeded at it because cannabis is classified as a drug that has absolutely no potential medical benefits, a schedule one drug right up there with quaaludes. And it's very difficult to get it into your hands in the laboratory so you can study it there. Now, I don't regret my field research. I think it's really important to see what people are doing in the real world. Um, If you don't, you can't devise a good experiment in the laboratory that reflects the real world. I've really enjoyed my research. My colleague, you know, like my employees and I actually enjoy going to the Emerald Cup. I mean, it's a nasty air pollution exposure, but it's a fascinating people environment. And we make it fun by going out to dinner and taking breaks and, you know, just having it be a relaxing and enjoyable, positive space for ourselves. But um, the being able to make federal research cannabis more accessible is something people have been working and working and working on for quite some time. And it's still a miserable pain in the butt. And a lot of my very expensive time that needs to go to other things to get that to happen. And once I do get that cannabis in the laboratory, I literally have to account for every microgram of it and I have to keep it in a locked lock box in a locked room in a locked refrigerator <laughs> and I have to get inspected because they're afraid that someone will steal it to get high I've even had a lot of problem with oh I get these air filters is somebody going to steal my little nasty glass fiber air filters that have secondhand smoke on them and divert them for drug use when in our current legal environment, again, I could walk to the curb and get much higher quality drug. So we're still, we're, you know, the, it's the country's a strange place. Let's just leave it that way. Yeah, that's a good way to wrap that up. Um, so thank you for, for addressing that. I think as we start to close, um, I wanted to talk about what I think is 
I'm not saying it's more important, but it's like, okay, here's, we've collect data. How do we go forward? Right. So I wanted to talk about possible uh, mitigation strategies and, and um, risk, like how to avoid risk. And uh, just to start the conversation um, in, I guess, two different ways. First of all, when you go to those events, you, you all are wearing PPE, right? I mean, no, uh, we'd look like dorks and no, and nobody would, would relax around us and behave. Oh, normally. true. Yeah. No, you'd look like a space person like everybody else. I mean, lately we've been wearing masks, which even, you know, like in some of the places, we were actually out on a bar study in San Francisco and Oakland recently, and everybody was, except us, was running around without their masks. But normally, and it's, in, and it's not pandemic times, we just suck up the exposure. We don't do these every week. Yeah. We do them pretty infrequently because, you know, we've got other experiments going on in the laboratory. Yeah. So, and, you know, it well, is they, a risk. The exposure... My employees... Yeah. The exposure probably I makes the job easier, right? I'm just joking. Yes, I'm joking. we get a much more honest understand. Now, you know, you know, there's actually one of the interesting things that's in the paper that's coming out is that the THC exposure, even with a very, very high pollutant exposure, is not enough to get you high. We're talking like you're getting like, I think it was 38 um, micrograms in a half hour exposure when 10 migs is your dose. So a thousandth to a hundred fold, you know, lower, even if you spent all day there, it's just not enough to get high. It's just enough to increase your cardiovascular disease risk. <laughs> all the bad things, none of the good things. <laughs> now, um, you know, and I'll just say in my own defense that anybody who works in my laboratory does not have to go on these experiments. There's plenty of other work to do. The people who do this work are the people who are really interested to do it because it is potential health risk and we acknowledge that. Yeah. And one more quick joke before we actually get to mitigation and risks. So when you do the lab experiments, does that just consist of like you sit down, you light up a bong and you're like, all right, people measure, uh, measure the air quality while I spark up this bong. Actually, old school, that is literally how it was done. If I were doing it in my laboratory, we would be rolling um, conical joints like the standard and getting them into a cigarette smoking machine. And, um, you know, I'm actually, I've gotten funded to do this, not to expose people, but to do a small system for chemical analyses. And um, we'll, we, we do it, we have a machine smoke the cigarette and do it inside a fume hood so nobody's exposed in the laboratory. Cool. That's yeah. actually interesting. Thank you for actually addressing my joke because there was a question. It's in there. real so, stuff. Yeah. People ask me and, and people are shy to ask too. And I don't mind, you know? Yeah. I yeah, like so, our research. So anyways, uh, yeah. What do you think are some possible strategies that, that we could do to change these things? So first of all, you, you talked about air ventilation that didn't really change anything. That would have been my, if you, if you like pop quiz me before I talked to you and you're like, Hey, how do you think you'd make a consumption lounge safer? I'd, that would be right off the top of my head. I'd say you get yourself the best air ventilation system, but you've already addressed that, that it kind of just spreads the air. doesn't really and I mean, it does reduce the PM 2.5 conversation, but concentration, but you've got to go so far down that it's really becomes infeasible in anything other than a wind tunnel. And that's not a relaxing sensory <laughs> sure. lounge experience. You know? <laughs> you know? So I don't, you know, first off, I'll just say, I, all right. Now, if, if I was Empress of the Universe, 
And I had a patient presenting who really needed to use their lungs as a drug delivery system and couldn't do it, couldn't smoke in their house. I would first say to them, um, how do edibles work for you? And do if you use edibles, do they reduce your need? Then I would say, um, what, you know, and like maybe this person was really, really afraid of, you know, like the chemicals in vape pen. You can use a vape pen and have very little secondhand because if you hold your puff for a long time, it's not all that noticeable. I mean, like most landlords are not going to bust you. If you're in a closed facility and under observation, that's another matter. But the difference between routinely smoking a joint and bothering your upstairs and next door neighbors and taking small hits off of a vape pen or using a dab rig very, very cautiously, you know, one where you, you know, like what I see when dab rigs release PM into the environment, and they certainly can, it's usually when people are trying to do multiple dabs in a row. And so they're burning off the residue before they start the next dab. So if you hit your dab and keep it covered until it's cool, all you're putting into the air is what's coming out of your lungs practically. There's a lot of low aerosolization, low pollutant exposure ways of using cannabis if you're careful. And if you're not just like, damn, I'm gonna smoke a joint or a blunt and that's the only way I'm gonna do it. You know, you're gonna be stubborn like that. You're gonna not, you know, you're gonna not be able to use in your space without getting busted by your neighbors. And your neighbors should not have to breathe or even smell, even if the PM isn't that high. You shouldn't be making stinks in your house that affect your neighbors. Same as if I was constantly cooking liver, you know? <laughs> so that's one thing. And I think we need to actually, if we're really talking just about serving medical needs in people who are like, say, living in public housing, there's a lot of low secondhand ways of using starting with edibles, moving to the non-burning, no side stream, no smolder type uses, and being very careful and only using it when you need it. Then, so that's, that's, and people use, I would say that the medical patient as a wedge to sort of go back to the good old days of this is wonderful. We don't have to think about secondhand smoke. We can sit here in public and just smoke a lot, create a lot of air pollution, and it doesn't matter. And I do believe it matters. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is a very different kind of public consumption lots. So say you're in, you know, you're, you know, you're catering to tourists and they can't really can't use in the hotel room. They'll get busted. They'll get a lot of fines. Then you you kind of create a one-person highly enclosed ventilated space. They go in there, used to their heart's content, the doors closed. They don't come out until the vents re remove most of what's in there. Nobody's seriously exposed, but that's an expensive thing and it's not adapted to every rental commercial space that you're gonna get. Outdoors is a possibility, but again, if you have a bunch of people firing up outdoors, who's next to you? It really, be it makes it a much more difficult thing to put into a business and while I have sympathy, I also just don't want to see the dangers of the secondhand exposure. So that's where I'm a hard ass. That's where I am not like palatable and joyous for the cannabis business people. But 
I would say, just broadly speaking, you can't control PM 2.5 if you don't take a combo plate approach. Ventilation alone is highly unlikely to do it if you don't also have containment, where at least you've got like a hood over you, if not a, a cubicle that's entirely composed. And then also, you've got to monitor, you can't have too many people at once because too many people burning at once will overwhelm the best ventilation or containment systems. Now, we've been in dispensaries in the Bay Area that have like the ventilation systems were made before the space was occupied. It was customized. It was intended to have like you use this way in this space and this way in that space. And if you don't want to be exposed to smoke, you can go in the dab room and here's the vape room. But when we were in there, it wasn't being operated that way because when you run a business in a public place, you've got to supervise your customers so they'll get up to things they should not be getting up to. It's not a cannabis specific problem. It happens at the UCSF library. They have to watch the carols in the far corners or people will be watching porn on the internet. You know, just normal human things you got to manage. And what we saw was that the doors were open between all the spaces in normal business operations, just because that's what made it safer and easier for the employees to manage. And they're not just watching out for pervy behavior and illegal activities, they're emptying ashtrays and making sure that people are happy, doing normal hospitality environment activities that a normal business wants to and needs to do. So it requires a lot more control. And I don't think a lot of business owners really that's not what they are dreaming of. They're dreaming of a relaxing hospitality environment where everybody can drop their cares. And I don't think that's gonna be easy to make safe. We've definitely been in a few dispensaries where we haven't seen dangerous concentrations of, of exposure. And those dispensaries have been characterized by not many people in there at the time we were there and not smoking using non-combustion, whether it's vaporizing or dabbing, and having a really hardcore ventilation system that had a fume hood over the consumption area, like a big, like, you know, if you've been into like a Korean uh, barbecue where you cook at the table, that kind of big restaurant type steel hood over the table. That's a lot of stuff. That's reducing emission by not actually combusting. That's keeping a, a, a hand on how many people are firing up at once. That's having good ventilation and that's also having containment. Not something that is casual to put into place as a business owner. That is, and it's also kind of um, because we have to be mindful of not keeping people close together it starts to chip away at what we know as the culture of cannabis i know that people are like listening yep. yeah 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 and i i feel the pain of that but i'm not going to stand down and say oh yeah let it rip it's fine you got no yeah. worries you do have worries <laughs> yeah well one confliction that i never really thought about like uh, like i'm conflicted when i i didn't realize i wasn't thinking about this um, you know, you're talking about the fact that this is a business and sometimes people don't choose to work where they work. It simply is nearby their house and it's the only option they have. And so in the spirit of that, yep. these, these people could be unwillingly exposed. Some people would say, oh, they choose to work there. I say, maybe not, maybe not always. And so, not you know what I mean? Economy. 
Exactly. I mean, dispensaries try and play, pay good wages. It's an advantage. I, I'm not saying all of them manage it, but you know, you know, people, it's 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 a it can be a good job, you know? Yeah. And 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 people, you know, people need their money. You know, when I do these experiments, I don't like tell the names of, of the dispensaries I'm going to because I don't want to ruin someone's income. I want to change the regulatory environment they're working in, not go after them personally. Because people need to be safe and secure. Public health is best when everyone's got enough money to make ends meet and a safe place to live and work. And that is my strong goal. Yeah. So, so I was wondering, cause I, again, that's something I hadn't thought about, like yeah. the exposure that the employee was dealing with. Cause I, when, I'll be honest, when we were in the working group and you were sharing all your findings and everything else, I was finding it interesting, but it just at the back of my head, I just kept thinking, these are the two things I was thinking. You were talking about safe consumption, but you were making the point that it wasn't safe. And I was like, well, the point isn't that smoking is safe. It's that you're safe from police, but then you address that. So I was like, okay, she addressed that. She's okay with legalization. It's not, she's not trying to put that down. Um, so the other thing though, that, um, uh, gosh, I just, um, I just lost where I was going. Oh, um, so exposure, employees exposure. And I just didn't think about the fact that these again are businesses. And so I, one of the things that kept popping up in the back of my head while you're talking was, I was like, well, I almost don't have any sympathy for these people because they chose to go to the consumption lounge. But again, I was not thinking about the employees who may not be choosing to work. You know what I mean? May not be choosing to work there. And so um, I guess my question is, as we continue this, uh, start to close this conversation about mitigation and risks, would a possible solution be, and I know that this is like, but just in a perfect world, which I know we don't live in one, um, but let's just pretend it's a perfect world. Would a possible solution be like a non-staffed park? And I get that people, like you said, you've done these studies in like at festivals where everybody does choose to go there, but it's almost like that. Then if there's not any employees there, which I realize the employees are there for safeguards and everything else, like that's part of the safe consumption, making sure people don't overconsume or get out of their head. So I realize that there are liabilities here. Um, but I feel like that's a solution. But another thing you had discussed in the working group is maybe having people wear PPE, which as you've pointed out, may take away from the experience, but it's like, I almost wonder if, if that's when the, we, when we, you know, you know in, in, I work in environmental health and occupational health. That's actually the division I'm in. We never recommend PPE first because it is burdensome to wear and people hate it. You know, I we know that equipment. we know yeah, <laughs> with exactly. the reaction you that everybody last thing you think yeah. about that. Um, so we always try and get an engineering workaround. And I will say, you know, the reason why we have smoke free tobacco places is because it's the cheapest, best, most effective way of reducing the exposure is just not be doing it. Now, marijuana is a different case. I have to say in my local community, the only people who 
need serious help are the people who are too old and infirm to get outside their houses because you just don't get ticketed or arrested or harassed for smoking cannabis on the sidewalk here. You really have to be doing something extra to get the police to give you a hard time just for doing that. You have to be obviously underage or rocking some other sort of crime at the same time. People will ask you sometimes to move along, but they're not there's not a legal penalty and it doesn't get you swept up into punishment and incarceration. And while I have plenty of colleagues in the public health community who don't want it anywhere and don't want to have to be exposed walking down the street. And I'm sympathetic to that. It's stinky. Not everybody loves it. You know that it, you know, different people are, are entitled to have their own different feelings about it. But um, if you, do have a legal environment like I currently live and work in, it takes away some of the impetus for like, we've got to have it for the sick people, for the people who need it, the medical cannabis users who can't do it at home because they're living in public housing and they might lose their housing and that's absolutely essential to their survival. If they're healthy enough to get 50 feet away from their building, they're pretty much good to go here. And not everyone is, but that's a, getting to be a very small set that we can spend money to help directly, you know? That's different from we want to have hospitality space. And I get that too. I, you know, before I was a scientist, I worked as a cook. I'm used to working in restaurants and wanting to have that kind of convivial environment that makes people happy. But don't make people happy doing stuff that's dangerous to your employees. It really does matter. We have to think about this. Smoke-free is safest. Outdoors is, you know, like your idea of the park. In some spaces, that's the best place. And that's like the cheapest way to get the biggest reduction in exposure. Your employees will still have some exposure and you're still gonna wanna be able to like limit density and activity so that you can monitor them from some distance. So it still makes it more work than people wish it could be. It's definitely not as easy as going back to the old days of it just doesn't matter and we'll smoke here. Yeah. Well, uh, just to, I have one thing that I want to wrap up with and then I'll give you the space if you, if we did, if we glossed over anything or if you want a final word or whatever. Um, but one thing that I know that might be in the back of some, uh, some of our listeners minds that was asked during the, uh, webinar and you have, I think already addressed it in this, but if we could make it more clear, you know, again, thinking of mitigation, how to make it more safe and mitigate the risk. Um, some people might be sitting here thinking like, oh, well, maybe, um, maybe there's a certain device we could use. Like, um, have you, you, am I correct in remembering that you've not really found a device that's like at all what you would consider? No, no I mean, burning stuff just creates a lot of toxins and you can't hold that easily through filtration. Even if you catch the particles, the, the, the gas face stuff rolls right on through and it takes a lot of filtration. And, and I've been in Reno casinos where they allow smoking in Vegas and it's not good control. Even with the best and most expensive filtration and a whole lot of air perfume added to mask things, it's just not clean air. And clean air is what we humans are best breathing. Well, they always say, you know, there's that myth of uh, Vegas. There's something in the air that makes you... Uh 
whatever they say. You know what I'm saying? You know, a lot of things in the air. I was going to say, there's a (laughs) you, as you know, there's a lot of things in the air. So you saw where I was going with that joke. I just really want to thank you for giving us the space for the conversation, letting me run on and, you know, talk my mind. These are the conversations I really value having. Um, It's not, you know, I, public health and cannabis business and cannabis advocacy have some places of happy overlap and some places of really painful conflict. And it's a treat to be able to sit with that without yelling or without, you know, getting really, really unkind to each other. We can just sort of sit with the fact that we've got different wants and desires and we, you know, should be able to talk about like the complexity of it. And, and assume some goodwill on both sides. You know, I feel deep res- that you're really respecting the research I do and that I'm not telling lies about the research or the exposure levels. And, you know, I respect that you're coming from a cannabis positive place of trying to figure out how to make this work, how to make this a safe space for something you value. Yeah. And I was going to say, if there's anything that, that I feel like we're both on the, definitely on the same page about is um, it, it seems that we're definitely on the same page about the fact that cannabis use should not be criminalized. Yes, there should be a quote unquote safe space. What we mean by that by law and by, you know, you mentioned people with federal housing, there should be a place that people should be able to use, but we also need to be mindful of the people that staff those locations and people that may be like adjacent or just at a level at a, just people that could be exposed is what I'm trying to say. And it puts some onus back on the user. Do you really have to be a ride or die burn it person if you seriously need to use your lungs and you have deep need? Or can you try some other stuff? And can we help people make those attempts and find safer ways for, you know, something that they find deeply necessary? Um, American policy, public health and legal all the way around can be just a really garbage place where we punish people for being in need. We take away access to something they do need, and then we don't fund any help for them. The mental health community can discuss that way more than me, but, you know, and, but we live with that. And like, you know, with the housing crisis in California, we have a duty of care to our fellow citizens. And if it takes spending money to help a person who's really in need use safer and and less pollutingly, can we maybe talk about that too? In addition to how can a business owner create a space where someone can consume safely without legal harassment, without exposing their employees? And an important part of the conversation is also law enforcement. Is this really where the law enforcement in your community is best putting their efforts? People in San Francisco get arrested for selling cannabis on the regular, but using it much less frequently. There have been reports. It's not just me, my observations. There's numbers on that. So can other communities consider that? And again, also can users not do it right under the window of somebody who's putting their baby to sleep and for a nap, you know? Yeah. If I could put it in a bottle, this whole conversation, we want to make the notion I'm saying we as in you and I and your team of researchers, we want to make the notion that using cannabis is truly 
not harmful to anybody, but possibly yourself. Isn't that a good way of putting it in the bottle? Because that's that's it what we legalized. Nice like if that's we the, can manage that as a goal. Yeah, because would you agree? That's kind of the basis of legalization. Who am I harming? Right. Right. And so right. let's make it. Let's make that to be. Let's reconcile that with the data you and others have found, and let's make that true. Let's make it so that you're not harming anybody but yourself. Possibly. Yeah, from a public health perspective, from my deep professional allegiance, that is what I would love to see. And, you know, continuing research, how does it hurt you if, if you use it or how does it benefit you? What's the best way to get the best out of this chemical that can really do some exciting and interesting things? Yeah. Let's keep being curious and let's create some freedom for inquiry and conversation around it. Absolutely. Rather than shutting it down. So thank you so much, Cole. It's really been a delight. Absolutely. And with that, folks, I uh, hope you found value in this episode. We will see you next time on the Chillinoy podcast.